and welcome back to Cooking the Books with Jilly Smith, the podcast which takes us through four food moments from the books of our favourite A-lister food writers. It's about all of life through the prism of food. And this week, I'm at the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen in North London to talk about their latest book, Extra Good Things. I think um, one thing this book really kind of pushes is the little sauces and sprinkles and the pickles and all those like accessories, I guess, and find different ways to like still add lots of love and fun into your food so it it could be the most basic food like uh, beans on toast but it could be the most amazing beans on toast because you put like this amazing pickle on it and a bit of hot sauce and you elevated it to to these wonderful heights while i waited for noor murad the author of extra good things to finish her meeting with yotta down the corridor i asked some of the chefs farina chaya cloda gitai and jens what their particular flavor brought to the Ottolenghi party. Jens is from Germany. Well, I tried to bring the order here. <laughs> Anything what I grew up with. I just did uh, like a hazelnut and chocolate sort of take on the Black Forest ghetto cake with, of course, lots of uh, input of the rest of the team, trying lots of different things. Where are you from? I'm a bit of a hybrid, so I'm actually half German, half Scottish. But I've spent a lot of time, I actually grew up in Scotland mainly, and spent a lot of time in America as well. I've trained in America, um, went to pastry school there. So what would you do? Because, you know, Nora writes about this in the the book, that, you know, you're all kind of doing something, and then somebody will say, how about a such and such, or what would your Scottish such and such be? What would my Scottish such and such? I love taking, like, a childhood classic, like a hobnob, or, you know, ginger nut, and then putting our sort of take on it. Like, add some cheeky, like, malt flavours in there. Um, quite more salty than what you would normally get. Uh, and then pair it with a really nice milk chocolate. Um, so a cookie like that, or as a crumble, or a brittle. I mean, I, I'm a pastry chef, so that's sort of where I live. But also, because I... Where I went to school, I had a lot of American friends, and then I lived in America for a while, so there's a lot of influences from there as well. So sort of candy bars that I used to like, um, and just places that I've... You, from everywhere. That's, it's really hard to actually... You can do that here, to, though, can't you? It's not like Italy or France or Spain where you... <gasps> exactly, exactly. Can't and I think that. we are quite good at doing that, and we enjoy doing that, because it's fun, you know, it's what... Like, for instance, I'm, I'm classically trained, but I like taking influences from and flavours from everywhere else and still using those techniques that I was trained in, like French-style techniques, but our sort of flavour profile and, yeah, I just don't think there should be so many limitations. Just play. Chaya is from Mauritius. Well, lots of tropical flavours. Um... I'm sure Noor will tell you that it's coconut, lots of coconut, lots of tamarind, lots of seafood, lots of chilies. That's the sort of Mauritian vibe. Gitai is from Israel. I guess it's kind of Middle Eastern flavours, uh, growing up with you know, Palestinian flavours from, from the country. Yeah, just a bit of Israeli sauce, I guess. I asked Cloda what her Englishness adds to this delicious melting pot. I've never been asked that question. I'm not sure I bring a huge amount. <laughs> I don't do any cooking, so um, I do I do lots of uh, writing for things, so maybe that's what my English, Englishness helps with. 
is writing things. Nor is the lead guitarist in this fabulously international band and the voice of Extra Good Things, the second after Shelf Love in the OTK library of how-to books which set out to future-proof our cooking with pickles, sauces and paste to zhuzh up our leftovers. With the climate and cost of living crises forcing us to build our resilient skills, it couldn't come at a better time. Nor grew up in Bahrain with her English mother and Bahraini dad, but trained to be a chef in New York before being otolengified, a term she defines at the beginning of extra good things. I asked her what that means. Well, um, to otolengify a dish is to add a slight twist somehow, a twist to the familiar. Um, what, is it, what does it mean for something to be so otolengi? It could be very veg-forward. Um, have a slight Middle Eastern twist, be super abundant and inviting, um, and have just something, just that something extra that makes it different, uh, whether that's like uh, from a sauce or just like a little sprinkle of something that you're like, oh yeah, that's so Otolenghi. Um, but then Otolenghi is also all the chefs that have come and gone over the years. So, I mean, the, the Olengi has been around for 20 years and it's it's more than one man it's a whole team it's a, it's it's two decades of like collected fingerprints um, that have kind of made Otolengi what it is if we go back to life before Otolengi yeah. life was you know I mean it was kind of interesting there were people doing interesting stuff with food but Otolengi came with a real bang it was a real sense of a new thing we knew exactly what it was Mm. Um, it was a lot of new ingredients that we might not have heard of before Um, it was certainly pomegranates Um, there was a lot of cauliflower uh, preferably with hazelnuts and we were doing things with vegetables that nobody had really done before it's only 20 years I mean what's your role in that Nor? how much of, of that have you been part of well, I started working at Otlangi six years ago um, from Bahrain. I'm from, I was born and raised in Bahrain. I'm half Bahraini. Um, so for me, working at Otlangi made complete sense because it was Middle Eastern food, which I understood so well, um, sort of westernized. Um, so, you know, moving to London for me was so strange, but working at Otlangi felt like being at home. And, and that is how Otolengi kind of makes you feel how, how it is to work there. They kind of make create space for anyone yeah. um, and kind of embrace you into the family. I mean, the thing about the, the, the Otolengi brand, the Otolengi Test Kitchen, is it's a hub of creativity, isn't it? It's not just cooking. It's writing. It's writing recipes. It's writing books. There's a massive library. To me, Otolengi, it's kind of stuff that we kind of know about but feels very exotic. Is that what you're trying to do here in the Test Kitchen? Yeah, absolutely. I think at the test kitchen, we want to create, we want to create dishes for home cooks that we want people to make our recipes. You know, it's not like oh, I just want to show off. It's more like, is this practical? Can people make it? Um, is it accessible? But then also, is it still exciting? Does it kind of teach you a new skill or teach you about a new ingredient you might have never learned before? And and that's exactly what we kind of do. Like, for example, in Shelf Love, there's a coconut cake, uh, which has got loads of vanilla as well, but it also has loads of cardamom, which kind of gives it that extra depth of flavor. Um, And that's that's basically what what our job is at at the test kitchen, is to build that flavor from the ground up and to add in these little pops of excitement. It started off... With just Tara and Yotam 
um, just testing out flavours in Yotam's home. It's moved a couple of times since. Um, it's now a real sort of industry. It's a real hub, isn't it? It feels like it's reflecting and contributing to hugely to British food culture. Does it feel that way to you? Yeah, definitely. You know, um, I mean, growing up in the Middle East, I was like, oh, maybe I'm not going to be able to find all my favorite ingredients here. But now you go to a lot of supermarkets. I mean, Waitrose, for example, you can get black limes, um, which is so crazy. And I think that is that is just shows it's a, it's a prime example of how Asalangi has influenced um British cuisine because you can get zaatar and tahini um, and Aleppo chili in in probably any kind of supermarket. You know, one of the things that I love about this is that Yotam himself has um, enabled a lot of people to be able to cook in quite a different way. Uh, creating a test kitchen that has a nine to five, for example, um, enables women to, to really work and produce some extraordinary stuff. But he also reveals the ghosts. And when I say the ghosts, I mean the ghost writers. He's very good at saying these are the people who actually do the Ottolenghi books. If cookbooks are kind of the cultural signifiers of these days, you know, once upon a time you'd go around to somebody and you'd go through their record collection to find out who they are. Now you go through their cookbooks. What does Ottolenghi say about somebody if it's such a mix of wonderful people from so many places in the world? Well, it's interesting you ask that because when I, whenever I go to someone's house, a friend or someone who haven't been to their, you know, they've invited me over or whatever, and I see Ossolengi on their bookshelves, it immediately tells me that, okay, this is a foodie. This is someone who's really into food. Um, and and it's, it's just this one name that unifies so many people. And I think anyone who has an Ossolengi cookbook genuinely appreciates good food because that is exactly what the Ottolenghi ethos is about it's just good food with a slight Middle Eastern twist um, and I think Ottolenghi has invited people from all walks of life it's it, you know it's not just like a, a London crowd it's a worldwide crowd I mean even in Bahrain my, my, I, I used to have all the Ottolenghi cookbooks my mom cooks from them um, so it is to show you like the reach is so far yeah, I mean, you know, the books kind of suggest that somebody's really interested in playing with new flavours. Mm-hmm. This book, for example, you take a lot of back-of-the-fridge food and you completely give it a whole new twist with a really zesty flavour, bomb, uh, or a kind of a, a dukkha. We'll go through some of your food moments in a minute mm-hmm. to give an example of that. But, you know, it's about people who can cook and who want to look at those detours that you guys go on in this test kitchen give us an example of something that where you started here and you took a detour and ended somewhere else well i'll use a recipe from the book um uh, i was testing out a bloomin onion recipe uh which because i was inspired by i lived in new york and in any if you go to an outback steakhouse in new york they have a bloomin onion which kind of it opens up, they cut it to open up like a flower and then they batter it and they fry it and, um, and it's served with a sauce. You kind of like pick at the petals and dip it and it's really delicious. Um, and I started trying to create it uh, here in the test kitchen and uh, unsuccessfully um, because I was like, oh, how am I going to autolengify? I was trying to all these clever ways of doing it and, and I found it to be a quite a hassle, um, especially for a home cook. I was like, oh, is, this, is anyone really going to want to make this? Um, and uh, and anyway, in the end, 
I, I, one day I was like, oh, I wonder what would happen if instead of a, an onion, I used the leek. Um, and, and it opened, like cut it in the same way. So it kind of opens up like a mop um, and dip it in this batter. And it was so delicious. And it wasn't as harsh as a fried onion. It's a bit more delicate in that allium flavor. Um, and then when you fry it, it looks like, um, they kind of look like duck feet. They have a really cool little shape, funky shape. Um, and then when everyone who tried it at Test Kitchen was like, oh, this is so much, like, we like it a lot more than the Bloomin' Onion. Even the Bloomin' Onion's amazing. Um, and that's kind of how it made its way into the book. So, you know, it started as something that was really trying to recreate. Um, and then it just morphed into, into something else. Very cool. I mean, I was just talking to Verena just a moment ago about, um, you know, what her Scottishness kind of adds to it. And she was doing that exactly the same with the, you know, she says, so you take a hobnob. And then you kind of think, okay, what do you want to do with that? And I've now got these. Well, take me through. I mean, you haven't even seen these before, have you? So this is literally straight out of the test kitchen. So that one is dipped in. What do you think that, that one is? That one's actually uh, made with egg whites, uh, almonds, and chocolate. It's the three ingredients, um, kind of like crispy macaroon thing. Fantastic. Yeah. I can't wait for, to eat those on the train all the way back. That's simply a, a kind of a hobnob that's... These are not actual yeah. hobnobs from a shop next door, by the way. No, no, but they're <laughs> inspired by the infamous hobnob. Um, yeah, and they're dipped in different chocolates. And that's really how we start. We kind of all brainstorm together and think about all the things that we'd want to eat. And hobnobs are obviously, like, top of the list. And then, oh, how do we recreate that and make it work for us? Yeah, and we heard from, you know, all the, 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 the various chefs in, in the test kitchen about where those flavors come. So Chai was talking about her Mauritian coconut, for example. She says mm. so much coconut in, in, in a lot of the recipes because you really love it, but also because that's her particular thing. She's always kind of suggesting how to add some more coconut. Let's go through some of your food moments. Um, the first food moment is the pistachio macaroon cake with elderflower apricots. And it tells us a lot about your past and how food kind of creates a community. I love this moment. Tell us about it. Uh, well, this cake is very much inspired by my mom. Um, so my mom moved to Bahrain 40 years ago. Um, and it, it was a very, it's very hard for an expat in the Middle East, I think, to kind of make friends and kind of create a community for yourself. Um, but my mom, kind of befriended all the other expat moms who were also married to Arab men and had children there and we and um they all used to get together and bake cakes um but my mom is a really really good baker um she's that I think maybe that's where I got my love for cooking is from my mom um and uh in the dessert section I kind of you know put together all these recipes and I really wanted to do something on my mom's walnut cake um, and it was such a simple cake. It's just like egg whites, ground walnuts, sugar. Um, and then I just kind of thought, okay, I'm going to give it a, a newer twist. You know, I'm going to use pistachios. I love pistachios and ground almonds. And, um, you know, the result was a bit different to hers. And it was kind of, it's, I call it a pistachio macaroon cake because it's kind of like crumbly, like from the whipped egg white and the sugar. Um, and it's so freaking delicious. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think a lot of like, you know, that for me is a big moment because I felt really proud of that cake because I was kind of like, I channeled my childhood and my mom and her baking and her, you know, desire to create a community with friends in the Middle East. And I put it into this recipe to kind of like honor her. Yeah. And it, you know, you talk about the swapping out and the tweaking. I mean, that is, 
what Ottolenghi is, is all about, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? It's taking an idea and then going, okay, what about this? And, yeah. and giving it a whole new twist. The second food moment is your root vegetables and harissa chickpeas with dukkha. You know, dukkha really came into being when Ottolenghi kind of took over our food culture. Tell us about this particular um, food moment. Well, um, the root vegetable bake, actually, I just never thought would make it into a recipe because it was just something that I just kind of whipped up one day um, during Christmas time. Me and my my old colleague Easter, we were kind of um, helping out with the bakery. It was all, you know, manic times before Easter. Everyone's packing cookies or whatever that make it into people's hampers. And we were helping out by making staff staff food. And uh, this was towards, it was closer to Christmas, so there were less people on the rota, and it was just a bit of a quieter day. And we were kind of clearing out the fridge and, We'd done loads of recipe testing with like relevant winter veg that 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 week, and um, we're just kind of using the odds and ends. There was a potato, some celeriac, a bit of pumpkin, and I kind of just chopped it up and and roasted it, and um, and then added some chickpeas halfway through, tossed in harissa, and everything's kind of got like nice and browned and softened. And then um, I'd made this dukkha for a different recipe. Um, and I'd sprinkled it on top, added tahini, uh, kept it vegan because we had um, quite a few vegan um, staff on, on that day. Um, and it was it was kind of great because I didn't follow a recipe, you know. Like it, when we're at the test kitchen, you just have to measure everything. You put a timer for everything. Like, every single thing you do, you have to write it down. And it almost goes against your instincts because, you know, as chefs, you just kind of want to cook to cook. But then in the test kitchen, everything's so regimented. And it was quite nice that day to just cook with how I felt. Like, I think it's ready. I'm going to add this. Or, you know, why don't I add... Let me use up what herbs we have. And um, anyway, I served it up for lunch and it was all gone. And my my colleague Easter was like, oh, you shouldn't turn this into a recipe. And I just... I hadn't even thought about it when I was making it. That I'm going to make this into a recipe and that it would eventually make its way into a book. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's the story of the, the root vegetable bake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the thing about that is, it's, for me, it's a very clear, there's stuff to use up in your fridge, mm. make it as tasty as you possibly can. And a lot of people don't know how to do that. And that's probably one of the most important things, I think, that this book has to offer. You know, we need to be more veg-forward, as, as you at the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen call it. Yeah, I think um, one thing this book really kind of pushes is, is um, well, basically in its concept, the extra good things. And that is, like, the little sauces and sprinkles and the pickles and all those, like, accessories, I guess, that you would, like, accessorize any plate of food that you have. So, you know, you can cook the recipe as it is in the book, but just like with Shelf Love, we really encourage people to take away, oh, I really love that pesto that went into the pasta. Next time I'm going to use this pesto um, and, you know, put it on my eggs in the morning, um, you know, or I'm really, I really love that bottle of hot sauce. I'm going to keep some in the fridge and use it every time I like something. I want something spicy on there. I'll just put some hot sauce on it rather than go and spend you know six eight ten pounds on a bottle from from you know whatever your local green grocer is make it yourself and and find different ways to like still add lots of love and fun into your into your food so it it could be the most basic food like uh, 
beans on toast, but it could be the most amazing beans on toast because you put like this amazing pickle on it and a bit of hot sauce and you elevated it yeah. to, to these wonderful heights. Yeah, that butter bean uh, with pink pickled onions on the top of it. Absolutely beautiful. So, so simple. I will definitely try that. But it's also very important to be able to uh, enable people to, to reduce waste, but also to, to use more vegetables instead of meat as we try to yeah. decrease the amount of meat in our diet. You know, yeah. it's not about going vegan, but actually where there are so many fantastic vegetarian and vegan recipes in here it makes it very easy it's very current isn't it i mean how much of that conversation about climate change and the cost of living do you have in those meetings that you've literally just come out of with yeah. yotam uh, we do we do talk about it a lot especially lately with in our current economy things are changing you know just so fast for everyone especially you know you think okay People who, like we said, people who like Ottolenghi books or people who love, or foodies who love food. Um, but in this current economy, maybe going out to a restaurant just isn't as feasible. You aren't going to be able to as much. But, you know, with, with, with extra good things, you could have something that really elevates your food, that makes you feel like I'm having something so luxurious. I'm, I'm treating myself. Uh, just because you have this quick pickle or this, uh, you know, little shatta or chili sauce in the fridge and you almost feel like, oh, I don't need to go to these restaurants. I can still kind of treat myself and have this luxurious meal um, at home within a budget um, and it's you know, it's very plant forward as well. Yeah, and, and resilient. I mean, you know, that's the thing, isn't it? You can still have a, a really lovely meal uh, if you can cook really nicely and have all these gorgeous condiments. I remember talking to Yotam years ago for the Delicious podcast um, about Simple at that time. And, you know, we used to, before before Simple, we had this idea of Ottolenghi that there was thousands of ingredients. In it. And then he started kind of really simplifying it and using flavor bombs as the kind of key to get the Ottolenghi flavor. This book feels very accessible. And same with Shelf Love as well. You know, is there a feeling that your Ottolenghi cooks kind of know the deal now? You don't have to go into such detail, perhaps? Or are you consciously simplifying stuff for people who know what they're doing? Um, I think it's because, um, I mean, you might have noticed, uh, the OTK books have a different look and feel about them. Um, they look like notebooks, um, and they're designed to be super user-friendly on purpose because we want them to be kind of like a, the most used book on your shelves. Um, we want people to take notes. We want people to take ownership of the recipes, really make changes, mix and match. Um, and I think that is the purpose of the OTK books. They're very, like, skills focused um and technique focused and you know they are kind of designed to be a bit a little less intimidating in the language that's used um and the way that the recipes are written and the flexibility of it all uh, because you know to have a recipe that is so rigid and you know you look at this recipe list and it has like 20 ingredients and you're like oh i don't have turmeric and i don't have cumin i can't make it no you absolutely can make it you can just make adjustments and we really kind of want the language in the OTK books especially to be very kind of forgiving, very welcoming, very yes, own it, make those changes, um, you know, use up what you have. There's no there's no need to say no to something or be wasteful at all. 
um, yeah. Yeah, it feels like a little bit sort of almost like um, perhaps in the old days, if you were to cook an otolenghi dish, it would be to kind of show off and be a bit fancy. Um, this feels very accessible. Your third food moment, the oven fries with tahini yogurt and smoky sweet nuts. This is about swapping out par excellence. Yes. Um, so when I lived in New York, um, you know, it was I, I'd moved to America. It was this big, massive country. That, you know, Bahrain is tiny. You can go around the whole country in like three hours. So for me, I was 18. I was shy. I was not very outspoken. And then I come into America, New York, of all places, where everybody has an opinion and everybody's very loud and like larger than life. And I remember being extremely lost and just kind of thinking, like, what am I doing? And um, and I befriended these really amazing Americans that kind of like took me under their wing and showed me the way and, and were like, this is the American way of doing things. <laughs> and they used to take me to these diners and I'd never been to a diner before. And, um, they, they, you know, they have them all over America. They usually open for like 24 hours and the food is, you know, it's, it's typical diner menu. So we just think burgers, uh, breakfast 24 hours a day, pancakes. Um, and anyway, we had my, my friends and I always ordered, um, milkshakes and, uh, disco fries. Uh, a very well-balanced student diet, you know. Do you want to just explain what disco fries actually are? Yeah. <laughs> so disco fries are basically uh, French fries that are smothered in gravy and melted cheese and bacon bits. <laughs> um, they're just, you know, it's, um, they are just extremely, um, you know, food that we would go and eat at like midnight and it would have no effect on us because we had the metabolism of 18-year-olds. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and uh, you know, I was just recalling these fun moments, um, thinking about doing like loaded fries for um, one of our recipes, and then I just thought, oh, the Noor today would not eat that. Like, the, <laughs> I couldn't even, you know, I can't even think about that. So, um, so I thought, okay, how would I like to have um, loaded fries if I had the choice? And so I just, add, I just add all the things that I love: so tahini yogurt uh, to swap out the gravy and cheese. Um, and then instead of bacon, I did like this smoky sweet nuts um, on top. And then I was like, okay, it needs some acid. So there's always herbs in the fridge, but there's always herb stems in the fridge. And so if you take any stem, whether it's coriander or parsley stems, finely chop it, put it, some vinegar in it, and then you have a lovely pickled herb stem that kind of lifts any any meal. And that was the the loaded the loaded fries uh, <laughs> noor slash otolenghi version. <laughs> As, as is your fourth and final food moment, the baked polenta with feta bechamel and za'atar tomatoes. This is not a pizza, you said. <laughs> looks like a pizza yeah, in the yeah. back. <laughs> it does look like a pizza. And my colleagues and I just say, yeah, the polenta pizza. But it's not a pizza, you know. Um, so basically, you make polenta and you spread it out really thin on a very large tray. And then you top it with like a bechamel and feta. Bake it in the oven until oven it's all golden and crispy and, um, and browned on top. And then you top it with these slow cooked zaatar tomatoes which are the extra good thing um and it does and then you use a pizza cutter to cut it into slabs and share it amongst your friends um and you know it's this it is kind of feels like a pizza but then you know we had this debate you know, at the test kitchen we often have these debates on like should how do we call it and like how do we present it to the world because you know the title of a dish is what makes it you know um so so i was like oh I, should we call it the polenta pizza or the polizza or um but then i was like oh but you know if someone invited me over for pizza night and 
I was given polenta, I'd be really upset about it. I would want pizza. Like it needs to be a bread base <laughs> with some kind of sauce. Um, so in the end, we called it baked polenta um, with feta bechamel. Um, but yes, it's a polenta, not a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> this is what you do day in and day out. You've told us about food moments that you've brought back from your New York student days. And it, it, it's all about kind of going back into your food memories and coming up with new ideas. Can you ever run out? Do you feel as abundant as you once did? I mean, where do these ideas come from? How many more can you produce? I mean, that's a fair point. I mean, I've worked for the Test Kitchen in the Test Kitchen now for four years. Um, I mean, the ideas still come, but I think sometimes you kind of think of an idea and you're like, oh my God, it's such a great idea. And then you Google it and you find out that Ottolenghi has done this idea 10 years ago. And you're like, oh my God, our past selves have, have just completely ruined it for our future selves. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. Um, the thing is like with the internet and everything's been done, the key is to just find maybe a new way to do it or a new way to plate it or a new way to cook it. Um, it, it does become challenging, you know, it's a creative job and creativity is not something that you can just deliver every day. So sometimes, you know, you have good weeks and you have bad weeks. Some weeks you just cannot, it doesn't come and or you're just frustrated or you make this recipe over and over again. Um, but the great thing is that we work together in a team and we uplift each other. And if you're not feeling so good, someone else might be feeling very inspired and give you an idea and tell you how to turn it around. And, and that's what's so great about working in a team. You're, you're stronger together and we all have one, um, you know, end point, which is that we want to create really good food that other people are going to make. Thanks for listening. You can read the transcripts at jillysmith.com where you can also sign up to my newsletter. And you can follow me on Instagram. I'm at foodjillysmith where you can keep up with my adventures in cookery with Leith's online. Check the show notes and on Instagram for full details of how to get a cooking the books discount on Leith's essential cookery course. 